Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. We're grateful, as always, for the Raised with Jesus podcast, for letting us be a feature, uh, along with all of the other things that you can get on the Raised with Jesus podcast. Uh, My name is Jeremy Lightnin, and I am here with my co-host, Michael Corleone. Uh, That's a good one. Have you seen those movies? I, I saw the first one. Well, but the second one's a better one. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, maybe I'll need to to watch Godfather 2. Yes. <laughs> uh, so our guest today is Pastor Mark Wagner. He is uh, our our second pastor here at Water of Life, uh, at least part-time, I think. What's the official? Well, welcome, Pastor Wagner. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm grateful for Mark that he is serving as our vacancy pastor, kind of taking some of the load off of me. That's the official term, yeah. There we go, vacancy. So, yeah. so Mark, uh-huh. where have you served in the past in your ministry? I had three specific callings in my uh, 40 years, and it started in Lubbock, Texas, um, for, for just five years in the panhandle. And uh, you, get, you get used to a lot of dust blowing wind. That's what Lubbock was all about. We were on the west side of the town, and and it was just windy all the time. Um, But the people uh, were such down-to-earth good people. If anything, when you start your ministry, you know, they are so forgiving when you're young, you know. That's just the way it is. But uh, the mayor of Lubbock would always say, we don't have mountains in West Texas. It's the Caprock because our people are mountains. (laughs) So then um, after uh, five years, in a, and it was really a mission that, that went self-supporting while I was there. Then uh, up to St. John's Wauwatosa, that's a, a much larger church, uh, reached the point of uh, over 1,200 members while I was there. Um, and then uh, my last 25 years were spent at uh, Our Savior Lutheran in Grafton. So I didn't go far, you know. 30 minutes, 35 minutes. There was a lot of uh, cattle herding, a lot of feed yards in Lubbock? Well, yeah, actually, that's true. Uh, I think there are other areas that have more, but Lubbock was kind of a a weird blend of oil and cattle, and uh, Texas Tech University was kind of a big deal there. So 200,000 people. But uh, there's plenty of mission work to do. So which, which football team, college football team, did you have to become a fan of down there? I actually was a student for a little bit, a graduate student on campus. So, uh, yeah, the Raiders, the Red Raiders. Te- right. Texas Tech, you said. Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh, what did you study? It was uh, um, communications, persuasion, that type of thing. Some classes, graduate course. It was fun to be in the university system. I, I really wanted to, to move through to a doctorate when I was young, but you know how that goes. Uh, you start raising babies, and uh, there was a lot of other things to do in ministry. So. No, that sounds really interesting with uh, just after you've been through college and seminary to then go back onto the college campus as a pastor. Did you ever um, find any opportunities to... Um, invite people to church or share your faith, or did you just kind of say, I'm, I'm going to be a student and that's my main reason for being here right now? It's almost immediate because when they find out what you do, they want to explore. So yeah, it, 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 it's a little bit of push pull. It's like when you're golfing with somebody and they find out you're a pastor, uh, they start to try to remember what did I just say? <laughs> <laughs> Same with students. I mean, they find out you're a pastor. They they're they're apprehensive, but they're curious. Hmm. So then, what was your ministry like at Our Saviors in Grafton? Since you spent 25 years there, and just and then retired from there in June of last year, right? Right. Yeah. Um, our Savior was a congregation that had kind of grown past its britches. You know, it was in the 500s uh, membership when I got there. And uh, so they needed central office. They were very uh, 
I wouldn't say very disorganized, but they just did, really didn't have the, the systems developed, that uh, central office and all those kind of things. I came out of Wauwatosa, which was highly developed, and so it was just a natural to bring that organization in to put in a, a central office. And, and really, uh, during the early years, uh, kind of trend towards outreach. And uh, we had some pretty good, pretty good years where we had in double digits uh, adult confirmands, and uh, you know it 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 was. Uh, I think it's it's really neat when you've got enough uh, ministry under your belt that you know what you're doing, and you still got a lot of energy. And when you're 40 years old, that's that's what I was when I got there. Uh, you're you're just about at at uh, hitting your stride. So. It was uh, easy to, to be developed, easy to be developed uh, ministry around the school because you're so highly, five children, you're involved in the school. We lived on campus, you know, the school's right there. So it was really an, a, an easy way to merge into people's lives. You're just naturally there. Yeah, and what you were just saying about, you know, being involved in the school because you had kids in the school. That was something my wife Shelly and I were talking about yesterday is we have to put on our schedule now to go to our Wisconsin Lutheran School basketball game tomorrow night because we don't have kids at WLS anymore. But be, being the pastor for the youth and the college students and really, you know, the only pastor except for now you, Mark, helping out with our a lot of our elder work and shut-ins is I got to be there and, you know, show my face and uh, build up relationships so that I can share the gospel. And, but, but it used to be we would just be there for, you know, basically it was like 15, 16 years. We were just naturally there. Now I have to schedule myself to be there. And it's the same thing. Saturday, I schedule myself to be at robotics at Shoreland for the high schoolers and then pop in for an hour or two to see the grade schoolers on Sunday just to, again, be there, be supportive of the kids and their parents so that, uh, you know, hopefully they know I care about them, that I'm coming to see their stuff when I don't have to. So then I tell them, Hey, I came to your stuff. You should come to my stuff. On mine, just happens to be on Sunday morning. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. It really is They're reciprocal. But it's that relationship. If you're there in their lives, yeah. And and I think that uh, there are phases. By the time you reach your sixty mark, you know the the teachers, the parents, they don't see you quite the same as involved on their level because you're not seeing them all the time as uh, a co-parent but it also opens up other aspects of ministry uh, so it's 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 just the plateaus of where ministry goes kind of by your own age development right so I spent uh, time yesterday and today visiting shut-ins you know I, I wrote myself that I had set my own record of visiting seven shut-ins in one day yesterday and then another six today and one of them uh, that I saw yesterday afterwards, as I was putting my coat on, she says, oh, pastor, it's, I feel so much better uh, when you come to visit. And I said, well, that's good because I'd hate for you to say, pastor, I feel a lot worse now that you came. Uh, but, but it's that <laughs> hanging out with you know, the older generation as well. And that's one of the neat things of being a pastor like this is you know, a little different for Jeremy. He's seeing the same kids every day. Whereas you and I in the parish ministry right now, it's all ages, and and you have to tailor your ministry. You know, in the morning I was teaching catechism students, then in the afternoon reading to the little kids, and then hanging out with senior citizens mm -hmm. in their homes. Yep, I was uh, really curious. I, I'm going to go back to your uh, classes that you took because you said you were uh, studying communication and persuasion that kind of sounds sounds like uh, rhetoric is that a fair way to put it Would you, yeah I, yeah at the time i was very interested in uh, becoming a better not only a better speaker but a better writer uh, and i was doing a fair amount uh, at, at that time over the years eventually i got so busy that i did not do as much writing hmm. but you're you're always trying to develop as a as a professional speaker in the pastoral office you just have to 
you have to uh, listen to yourself, look at yourself uh, through the eyes of others and, and try to understand what they're hearing because it's so easy to get into ruts, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to say things the same way. I think that's always one of the, the dangers of, of uh, preaching the gospel. Mark Brown used to always say, you can preach the gospel until, until you're bored by your own preaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then people will be too. So you have to be uh, alert, creative, not just to the to the world around you, but how to get that gospel into a fresh. Uh, I suppose liken it liken it to a vase of flowers. You can look at flowers, but they're always new and rearranged and and beautiful, and and that's what you want the gospel to be beautiful. Hmm. So d- just with the. Uh persuasive uh, aspect of it. I was wondering if you, you know, what, what did you pick up? Well, you can take this any direction you want, really. Um, I'm, I'm kind of interested in your, in your experiences with uh, studying in a secular classroom um, uh, or if you, you know, had anything interesting happen there or if you know any special uh, mental judo to uh, try to uh, win, win somebody over or uh, do you have any uh, interesting stories along those lines? You're you're right. the The world really sees it as as selling a product. You know, it's marketing. It's it's uh, now it's TikTok, <laughs> and everything around that. You know, you're selling yourself. You're selling your vision and everything else. And uh, I do think that that secular side of the class uh, helped me to understand the world a little bit better. And it was a little bit difficult. Uh, fortunately I did not have a professor that was a uh, shutdown kind that, that the moment they know you're a, a preacher, you know, a biblical guy, uh, you know, somebody that has an absolute truth, they, they shut you out. Uh, so at least I had that opportunity to kind of walk the line, uh, in there in the class and I, a little bit of a disruptor to their normal class because, I was unusual being in that in that setting. So a graduate study level and and these are all very smart people. But boy, were they uh, they were very scientific even then, uh, you know. So since you brought up preaching, it's something that when I whenever I get together with other pastors, just kind of pick their brains on preaching because i know i have my preaching style i'm interested in how other guys preach so i'm interested in how you guys do you guys uh are you ones that really write with a manuscript in mind and then you preach that manuscript or are you more think more of a guy who's you've got your ideas of where the sermon's going and you're more free in the pulpit what the uh, guy who took the rhetoric classes is motioning that I should talk first. <laughs> uh, I I probably started out with more typing up a manuscript and then memorizing it cold. And uh, the more and more that I develop, I guess I have to say, it's probably easier to have um, basic, basic thoughts. Uh, a good way to describe it, I think, is scenes that there are different scenes of your sermon and or your chapel devotion or whatever you have. And uh, uh, instead of like like reciting word for word what you typed, if you can convey the scene uh, in, in the similar way every time, uh, that's that's going to be the most effective for you to remember, but also for your listeners to be the, keep the most interested in it. Yeah, I would say that I I still to this day write a, a tight uh, manuscript, but I don't preach it that way because uh, I tended to be more academic when I would write. And, you know, you get used to doing uh, more scholarly work. If you try to do that as a preacher, you end up writing at this level. And if that's not who you are when you verbalize, and I, I'm kind of a big contrast between... I can write uh, and convey thoughts, but it tends towards the academic level. So when I preach and preach like that, then then you know, it's uh, you're going up over the top of people's heads. Too big of words, uh, too long of sentences, and I don't communicate that way in my normal activity anyway. So 
I like what what Jeremy said about the the concept of scenes because really then the, the the you keep on the structure and you keep moving forward. You can move more rapidly and if you like I was describing to him before we started, I preached on Thursday nights for 36 years as a kind of a prep towards Sunday. And uh, the concepts of Thursday night would kind of stew in me uh, until Sunday morning. And I think that if I overemphasized uh, a scene or a story and didn't catch the, the gist of the text, by Sunday morning, you can ratchet that back. You still convey the scene, but you're trying to get to the text more directly. So did you let your Thursday night worshipers know you were just practicing on them? They knew that okay. before, <laughs> yeah, that's, unfortunately. Because I, I <clears throat> I've talked to a couple other pastors recently, and they said the same thing, that you know they're still writing and developing on Thursday when they have to preach, and the people kind of know it, uh, that it's not as polished as it might be on Sunday. Uh, and the way I preach is I know that I'm a writer first. And someone recently said to me, you know, well, you have a, a cadence, and, and I do have a cadence in the way I preach. And, and I was telling Shelly this, that I will write for my cadence that, you know, if, you know, this is too long of a sentence or this doesn't sound right the way I would, would write it. But I also write it. And the reason I, I asked about this is because I know the way I write to make sure it doesn't always come out the same. You know, if you're just going off the top of your head, it's very easy to just say, well, Jesus uh, suffered, he died, he rose again, and move on, as opposed to sitting down and being creative and, and then using creative language to say, you know, he, uh, you know, well, now I'm not going to be able to do it off the top of my head because I wouldn't be able to do it off the top of my head from the pulpit. You know what you should do? is join the uh, improv club that I started at, yeah. at Shoreland, and then you can know how to do anything off the top of I, your head. I would love that. And, but I also know that what I've gotten into the habit, but if, it's taken me 25 years to have the confidence in the children's devotions, chapel devotions at Shoreland and so forth, uh, to be able to not have a manuscript and not even write any anything's not anything down at all. So I'm trying to free myself in that aspect and save something else that's different for the pulpit. You know what I, I liked about what you said is, uh, well, I forget exactly how you said it, but I, I recently came to a realization that, that there are other preachers, uh, uh, friends of mine that I like to listen to who are pastors, and they put their sermons online, um, videos of them, and uh, there are several that are kind of my favorites. And I was trying to figure out what, was, what made them my favorites. And I, I think what I came to conclude was that um, my favorites were the ones who, the way they are in uh, talking during their sermons is exactly the way they are when you're conversing with them. Uh, and, and and it's not even a matter of it's not even a matter of you know that they have feedback from the congregation. No, it's not like a give and take in a sermon. It's just that even though they are the only speaker, they are talking with you as though you're involved in the conversation. The listening in, yeah, that actually is an extension then of your person, your your color, your nature will show through. And I think you can you can hide behind, uh, in an academic way, you can hide behind uh, um, a, th a thought process, and and uh, but you can also become somewhat stilted and wooden, and it's a pr presentation. I think I think when you and your person uh, come through, uh, there will be a better uh, blend of of. You described uh, the scene, and so like Jesus, when he uh, would teach, not just using parables, but using uh, story language, story approach, would would be so easy to listen to. It's very engaging. And if you were just sitting around a fire and your your uncle, your friend, your brother starts telling a story and everybody's wrapped with attention, it's usually because they're not only a good storyteller, but you love the color of their person. 
You mm. just, you know, they, they just are one of those kind of people that just are, are fascinating. So, yeah. So do you think that, uh, like you said, it's important to look at yourself or evaluate, watch, watch videos or listen to recordings of yourself? Is it, is, would it be kind of shameful if there were two uh, people recording a podcast and they had never actually listened to an episode of their own podcast? <laughs> I mean, just um, hypothetically. I, hypothetically, I mean, yes. Yeah. Well, guys, you move along at a pretty good rate, huh? And it's hard to come back. And I, I think I did that more when I was younger. I actually listened to my. Uh, I would. Well, I had we had a podcast that was recorded every service, mm-hmm. so I could just go right to the podcast and just listen uh, to myself and review, you know, but at the same time, uh, one of the, the tendencies for a little while, I would try to get really tight and, and the things I liked about that sermon, I tried to try to remember them almost verbatim and see if I could deliver that on. And then you kind of paint yourself into a corner Mm -hmm. because you're not, you're, you're looking more for, uh, phraseology, uh, sentence by sentence rather than the concept, the bigger picture, the scene. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting, because people will say to me, you know, Pastor, you, sh- you shouldn't have to spend so much time writing sermons. You've got 25 years of sermons, just use an old one. And I like to think, you know, I had good sermons in the past, but we we develop and change over time that our preaching style, like you're talking about, Mark, it changes. And I think each text and each uh, each text is different. And you might preach one differently than the very next week because it's a different text, it's a different author, and so you do something totally different. But, you know, we develop as preachers the way I would never want to preach a sermon I preached those first couple of years as a pastor because I had no idea what I was doing. And now... You know, maybe 10 years from now, I'll look back at the things that I'm writing now. I think, these are pretty good. And then 10 years from now, man, what was I thinking back then? <laughs> Should we get into the gospel lesson? Sure. <clears throat> the gospel comes from John chapter 1, beginning with verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I was talking about when I said, The one coming after me outranks me because he existed before me. I myself did not know who he was, but I came baptizing with water so that he would be revealed to Israel. John also testified, I saw the Spirit descend like a dove from heaven and remain on him. I myself did not recognize him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this myself and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day John was standing there again with two of his disciples. When John saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God! The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned around and saw them following him, he asked, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He told them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his own brother, Simon, and say to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. So, Mark, what did John mean when he called Jesus the Lamb of God? What is beautiful about this portion of the the gospel is that he says it twice. He says it twice in there. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first, of course, uh, down uh, where you're, you're basically uh, beginning Jesus' beginning ministry, and then the second is with the calling of the disciples. The Lamb of God is the center of the whole sacrificial system. Everything that Israel did was oriented towards the firstborn being given. And now you're back at the Passover. The angel of death goes over the top of the houses. 
that have the blood over the door uh, posts. And uh, I think that, that there's just such a natural tie uh, between the, the whole of Israel's worship life and the Lamb of God. They understood as Jews that the Lamb was sacrificed. What I found interesting is that the title Lamb of God is not an Old Testament title. You won't find that as a as one of the titles like Emmanuel and so forth. But obviously the promise of what Jesus would be, uh, that he's going to be fulfilling everything from uh, the, Yur, the Yom Kippur, the goat for the sacrifice and the great day of atonement, to the Passover lamb, Jesus is that fulfillment. Jeremy, what does the phrase Eka Agnes Dei mean, and where do we use that in, in our worship service? I, I don't think I've ever been in a worship service that uh, used that phrase. I don't know. <laughs> That's Latin. I don't know well, what you're talking about. But Agnus Dei is. Okay, it's uh, Eke is behold, and Agnus Dei is the Lamb of God. Uh, can you finish that Latin nope. sentence? I qui, can't. Qui, qui tollis peccata mundi. Who, who carries the sin of the world. And I, and I do think that's important that uh, we, we often say takes away, which is true. He removes guilt, uh, but he also, before removing it, had to carry it. He, he is carrying, he carried, he's done carrying, but he did carry our sins uh, to the cross. Um, I, I was thinking when uh, Mark was talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system, how uh, I had a, a teacher once who pointed out, and you, you probably know, um, uh, oh, good grief. Hey, you should probably <laughs> take this uh, class that you're offering at Shoreland to help you with your, your improv. Your Im- improv. Improv, yeah. No, um, <laughs> no, I'm, a name is escaping me, but he... Uh, It'll come. It, he, he, he would uh, talk about how the entire... Torah, the first five books of Moses, uh, if you look at it, they, they center on the God giving the instructions about the great day of atonement. Yes. That, that, that's the, that's the, and the, the title of his presentation was Christ is the center of the Torah. Uh, everything, everything that Moses wrote all zeroes in on that great day of atonement when the, the blood, uh, was, uh, sprinkled on the, mercy seat and uh, the priest atoned for his own sins and for the sins that covered up. He covered up the sins of himself and of the people. And the other thought I had, and then I'll uh, stop talking, is just uh, Andrew, uh, his bro- Andrew was a follower of John, and John was the one who drilled it into his students' heads. Uh, that guy over there is the Lamb of God. That's, that's Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. And then uh, Andrew went and Told, taught his brother Simon what John the baptizer had been teaching him. And then later, what do we find when uh, Peter writes his first epistle? He writes uh, in chapter one about how Christ is the, uh, you were not purchased with perishable things, but with imperishable, with the uh, spotless and pure blood of the Lamb of God uh, without blemish or defect. Mark, why... Why do you think that that phrase or that song, Anya's Dei, the, the Lamb of God, why is that sung in that area of our Lutheran liturgy? I, I didn't answer the question. I'm sorry. Uh, it comes right before we take communion, after we have sung the Holy, Holy, Holy. That's the Lutheran liturgy he's talking about. Yeah. yeah. But why, yeah, why there? Well, the whole concept is to get... Uh, aware of the blood, the the burden that you d- described is being removed by the the Lamb of God who loves you, and uh, what a beautiful time in that service for reflection and awareness and even uh, the the humility that He should love m- me, who is you know like Paul would say the worst of sinners. It it just is that uh, bond. Uh, with the firstborn son of God, that that he would even deign to be a part of our lives. I mean, the the fact that in worship, that the uh, the Lamb of God is coming into our world, and we have a personal 
connection with his forgiveness. Right. And so when Jesus first instituted the Lord's Supper, he's celebrating the Passover with his disciples in the upper room. And so he's celebrating the Passover lamb, and then he is also the Passover lamb. And so we sing that song of the Passover lamb that Jesus is now the fulfillment of. And as uh, the disciples there took bread and took drink, and then they were uh, taking part in Jesus being that Lamb of God. Now we, after we have just sung that song, we're partaking in the bread and wine that is his Christ's body and blood. Uh, and I know, Mark, you're preaching uh, on, are you preaching on this text? Yes. Yeah, so you're preaching on this text, and then uh, we sing uh, the Agnus Dei, Lamb of God, and then the two communion hymns I picked for it, you know, it really drives home for the worshipers. It's the Lamb and Lamb of God. And for our listeners, you know, listen for the, uh, the Lamb. I wrote a devotion and recorded a podcast on it. And just that imagery of going from you know, Isaac asking his father, Abraham, as they go up Mount Moriah, Father, where is the Lamb? And uh, Abraham, Father, Abraham says the Lord will provide. And then seeing that Jesus is that Lamb. And then that wonderful progression through that hymn of those five verses. Then one last thing, too. The reason I bring up Eka Agnes Dei, Jeremy, is in our Racine campus, in the back of our sanctuary, is a lamb carrying a banner that says, Eka Agnes Dei, Behold the Lamb of God. And whenever I have an opportunity to point it out to our members, because it's in the back of the church, they don't really look back there very often, and they really don't know. They know Latin less than I do, so I want them to know that's, that's pointing to this song that we sing every communion liturgy. You know what is uh, an interesting thought that just occurred to me is there was another Eke that I, I know of in Jesus' life. It, I, I don't think it was in Latin when it was originally spoken, but it was um, Eke Homo, which is Behold, behold, the, man. behold the Man on... Yep. On Good Friday, mm-hmm. that was what mm-hmm. Pontius Pilate said to the to the mob about Jesus. Behold, the the man, um, Pastor Zarling. Uh, I have a question for you. Um, what kinds of symbols of the Lamb of God have you seen in churches? Yeah. Well, so I gave you the one of that Lamb of God. Uh, I know at St. John's in Oak Creek, and. First Eve and down here in Racine, it's not so much the Lamb of God, but it is that in this imagery of the sacrificial Lamb. But that is the the Lamb that is resurrected. It's the Lamb that's sitting on the seven of the the Scripture with the seven seals of it. Um, that looked like it had been slain. Yeah, that looked like it. Well, those don't have that Lamb that's slain. It's the victorious mm. Lamb. We do have a picture. Uh, during our end time season here at the Racine campus of the lamb that was slain, that there's the wound in his side. Uh, One of my favorite images is by Scapegoat Studios. So that's a Wells artist, Jonathan Meyer. And he has an image of the lamb that is slain, that uh, the neck is, is cut and the blood is poured out onto the ground and the blood forms the seven continents. And Interesting. It is very powerful. It, I've, I've seen that. It is it is a really beautiful picture. Yeah, and or I think of I isn't it MLC on the altar? Yeah, we ours was the next one that Pastor Nathan Pope built uh at our Savior in Grafton was right after uh, the Chapel of Christ, uh, you know, he had done for MLC. So we had his, his wife did the mosaic of the lamb. And so... You want to describe what the lamb looks like? Well, uh, laying on the, uh, basically at the point of death, you know, the sacrificial lamb. And in the mosaic for the pastor, especially, it's, it's kind of on the flat. So your people don't get to see that. Mm -hmm. But when you're there and you're conducting the Lord's supper and you're looking at that lamb who is slain. Yeah, that's, that's pretty powerful. Uh, you had uh, described the es- eschatological uh, concept of, of Revelation 4 and 5, where Jesus mm. is the, the one who is, uh, 
worthy, right? He's the only one that is really worthy to have this worship and to have the role of, of, of opening the seals. And uh, I think that that's really critical to recognize that the resurrected lamb has, has a, a, a right or an authority by the very function he carried out. All of the prophecies fulfilled. He is who he claimed to be. He's the son of God, and yet he is a human being who was sacrificed. And that's another hymn that can go in the place of uh, Agnes Dei is the Feast of Victory. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Mark, how did John know that Jesus was who he said he was? Well, the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. He was very clear about that. Uh, I think that's the key. It isn't even did he know that Jesus, his cousin, uh, was going to be the Messiah. Was there uh, some heavy-duty family history between John, Elizabeth, Mary, and Joseph? Uh, There's no doubt about it. You know, there was there was an inside track. They knew that something unique and special was going on with these boys. But it was the identifier that that the Holy Spirit said, there he is. And he is the one now who will carry on. And as you and as you said that with the Holy Spirit telling John this, I just want you to I hadn't thought of it this way until you said it this way is. John saying, the Holy Spirit is the, said to me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Just the Spirit is just getting in there all the time. He's telling John, I'm telling you, watch for the Spirit. Uh, Jeremy, John contrasts himself saying, I baptize with water, with Jesus, and he says, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Was the Holy Spirit absent from John's ministry, or what's the point of John's contrast? Um, it, it's more so saying that Jesus is the efficient power behind uh, whoever the earthly minister is. So, it, no, the, the Holy Spirit was in John's ministry, too. And, and he's also in every baptism that is performed, all the washings with water in God's word. Uh, the Holy Spirit is there. Uh, it it's just that John is here saying Jesus is the one who uh, puts the Holy Spirit there. He's the one who's the, the effective cause or the power behind all of the other ministra- ministrations or baptisms that are performed. Yeah, and he, he I think he's also adding to the fact that he had said elsewhere that the one uh, who comes after him is greater than him, that John wasn't even worthy to tie the thongs on, on Jesus' sandals. And yet Jesus calls him the greatest born among human beings, right? You know, it's amazing because of that uh, prophecy that just identifies John as the one who's going to point to Jesus. And it, you can't get any clearer than, than it is in Isaiah. And you get into chapter 40 and the beauty of, of the one who would be the forerunner, foreteller. Uh, my goodness, uh, to have the the power of the Holy Spirit identifying that to John, and then, and then it fulfills the Old Testament scriptures in such a precise manner. So, Mark, John was born before Jesus. So in what sense was Jesus before John? Well, Jesus is before all of us because he's <laughs> one of the Trinity. He, he is uh, obviously there from the beginning because he was, has no beginning or end. And as God, uh, you, have, you have this unique relationship that uh, Jesus uh, has between his human nature. Uh, we will often teach that in catechetics, you know, 100% God, 100% man. And so uh, the, the, the mind of Christ is far more than just starting uh, here at 0 B.C. or if you want to say 3 B.C. or whenever Jesus was actually born. He, 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 he has been from the beginning. And the, so the wisdom, the level of the, the mind of Christ that's there, and now when you combine that together with uh, the good news that is uh, resident in him, that he is the word of God that's going to come and, uh, you know, everything he says is going to lend insight into the Torah, into the Old Testament scriptures, and all of the fulfillment of the prophecies. 
I mean, it, it really gives uh, a weighty testimony that, uh, that he, he preceded John in every aspect except by his human birth. So, Jeremy, you already talked about the end of this text of Andrew pointing Peter to Jesus. So how is that a model for us? Your uh, most important mission work starts in your home. Uh, I was actually just talking this morning. Uh, one of the fellow faculty members at Shoreland was telling me about how he was uh, doing a morning devotion with his daughter, and uh, he likes to take her through the catechism and, and his other kids uh, and say it all together. And uh, they always have a prayer for different people on the table of duties. You know, this is the uh, responsibility of the pastor. This is responsibility of the government or the parents or the or the children. And he said, we always did the children, but uh, today I used a different one. And my little daughter said, dad, you were supposed to do the duties for the children. <laughs> uh, and uh, I guess that's kind of what I see here with um, Andrew is uh, he's he's doing it the right way by making sure instead of going out and saying, I'm going to save and convert the whole world, uh, that would be great if we can get that far. But let's start with our own family members like Andrew started with Peter. Yeah, and that's the key is uh, when you're talking about evangelism, you know, you want your church to do evangelism and have a program and have events and so forth. But when I've seen the greatest growth in both churches that I've been pastor at, the growth has come from members inviting their own family members and friends. That's where the, the church grows. Uh, it's, and that being said, it was really neat yesterday receiving an email from one of the parents at WLS uh, just asking about baptism and membership. Here's a lady. I actually forwarded the email to my wife and said, wow, exclamation point, because this was someone I didn't think would, was really interested in faith or baptism, and then... That's great. Yeah, and the Holy Spirit is working through the word that her child is hearing uh, in school, working in... I don't think, you know, mom's been listening to God's word too much, at least in worship services, but it's there. And uh, to be able then to point her to Jesus, hopefully point her to, to baptism, you know, do that Bible study with her, and then get her in classes either with myself or our school chaplain. So, it, it, you know, the interesting thing there, too, is it's not just come and see, but they uh, first spent time with Jesus. You know, where are you staying? And he invites them. And that is not a, a, a five-minute, uh, you know, okay, now you can go. They spent the day with him. They, they were beginning to transition from John to Jesus. And think about how much time they spent with him in the next three and a half years. Uh, phenomenal amount of time. But even then, they still had so much growing to do. And it's, it's that time spent with Jesus, whether it's in the Word, whether it's in worship, whether it's in service, and always recognizing His role in our lives that makes it... it the world is just different when you have Jesus with you or in the, in the right perspective, but Jesus walks with you. Anything else you guys want to bring up with the gospel lesson? All right, you want to get into the epistle lesson, Jeremy? The epistle comes from Colossians 2, beginning with verse 6. <clears throat> Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him by being rooted and built up in him and strengthened in the faith just as you were taught while you overflow with, uh, in faith with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, which are in accord with human tradition, namely the basic principles of the world, but not in accord with Christ. For all the fullness of God's being dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been brought to fullness in him. Christ is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done by human hands in the putting off of the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with Christ in baptism. And in baptism you were also raised with him through the faith worked by the God who raised Christ from the dead. Even when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made you alive with Christ by forgiving us all our trespasses. God erased the record of our debt brought against us by his legal demands. This record stood against us, but he took it away by nailing it to the cross. After disarming the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them by triumphing over them in Christ. So, Mark, what encouragement does Paul give the Colossians and us in verse 6? He is describing for us that uh, we need that relationship rooted and built up in him. Uh, that is the connection with uh, Jesus that, that uh, you have received him, you continue to live and grow. And I, I've been kind of amazed. I love trees. Um, I've had to watch a lot of my ash trees uh, die out to the ash borer. Um, and uh, they, they are powerful. Their root systems, as we well know, are as large as uh, the canopy above. And you think about somebody who has walked with the Lord their entire life. Now, as pastors, we sometimes get to see that uh, connection when you step into a, um, a shut-in's living room and you're doing Lord's Supper, and then they come up with one of these statements that just demonstrates pure faith. And uh, there were a couple of people that uh, in my ministry, we almost fought with uh, each other, uh, my, my associate and I, to go and see <laughs> because they built us up. They were deeply rooted in Christ. And uh, it's the beauty of that, that, uh, that you come out uh, with uh, a confidence, but here it's talking about uh, Thanksgiving. And I've seen, I've seen a couple of those senior citizens who were so thankful, even as they were suffering with things like brain tumors, cancer, the weakness of the flesh, but the strength of their spirit. You know, you're talking about those roots of the trees and how big uh, they are and how far they can go out. I have to know that every spring when I get water back up in my basement because the roots went into my my pipes, and so I always have to put that root <laughs> oh. killer in there so I don't have waste water in my basement. But that being said, it was something I mentioned to uh, the shut-ins in my devotions the last few days is, you know, I asked them, what do you think? Do you see this as a wicked and evil generation right now? And obviously they watch the news and they see it. And I said, well, I said, well, it's because there's no root. There's no foundation. There's no fear of God that the majority of people, it appears that they do not have the law of God working on their hearts to curb their sin. And therefore, they also do not have the love of God to sanctify them, to follow the guide of God's law to or of God's word to walk in faith and so they're just going the way of their sinful nature and that then goes to the next question Jeremy what does Paul mean when he writes about the basic principles of the world he means every world religion that is not Christianity uh, because all of them can be boiled down to in some way or another that you have to uh, do something good in order to uh, make yourself good, or you have to do something righteous in order for uh, the God, whoever the God is, to love you. Uh, and that makes good sense if you don't know about the gospel. Uh, that that makes perfect sense. That That's how life is. You, you, you can't expect something for nothing. Uh, and so that is kind of a basic principle of this world, but it's it's this world without the spiritual knowledge of forgiveness through Christ. And, and one of the gods of our culture right now, I would say is Mother Earth, Gaia. You know, I was reading some stories yesterday and today about how there are those that now want to get rid of our gas stoves. Well, the reason for that with everything else is because it's worshiping the climate. It's a climate cult, it's, and it's all about looking good in the eyes of others when it comes to this world. And it's no different than these heathen philosophies that Paul's writing about that were in Colossae that we mock as being pagan, but we see that paganism 
in the uh, 21st century we're living in when it comes to all of this stuff with Mother Earth and Gaia and so forth. Yeah, the the how pervasive it has become in that uh, philosophy of science, and it's almost every single uh, headline that you open has some form of man's wisdom versus the absolute uh, quiet divine truth of, of Scripture. And that leads to the question of verse 8. Mark, against what does Paul warn them in verse 8? Well, it, it's the, the getting off track. It's, it's no longer walking with Jesus. It's following this, uh, the, the principles, what, what Jeremy described, rather than uh, the, the word of Christ. We're, we're going to contrast in the next verses the fullness of God and his wisdom versus what man can, can assume or understand. We're still looking through dark glass. The best of a human mind will not even begin to touch on the mind of Christ or the, the love of God in Christ. We don't understand, and right. yet we think we do. Yeah, because Paul says, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, which are in accord with human tradition, namely the basic principles of the word but not in accord with Christ. And then he contrasts that. So, Jeremy, how does Paul summarize the truth that Jesus is true God and also true man in person in just one sentence? All the fullness of God's being dwells bodily in Christ. All right, so what does that mean? Uh, the, the complete thing that is God is uh, inside of a body. All right. So, Mark, what gifts do we have in Jesus that the world's philosophies and religions can never give us? Well, he'll he'll get to that shortly when he says we're buried with Christ in baptism. We have a we have a new life. We're we're just uh, changed from inside out, and uh, you no longer uh, are calculating everything for self advantage. You're you're trying to serve and love the the lord and to be like him uh so the very first thing that happens is you are you are given the gift of of forgiveness of acceptance by a god that should punish you and uh, that 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 beauty of the of the person of christ uh in your life uh begins to show it shows uh deeply within your own attitude and uh, and then is going to develop into everything that you do. You you are going to have that thankful spirit, that uh, awareness of grace. You're going to have a love that's brand new and deep and rich and wide and long is the love of Christ. You know the apostle will say in Philippians. So my daughter Lydia, who's a sophomore in college, she texted me uh, an image of an assignment she was just given by her religion professor, and she made a point that it uh, is supposedly a pastor who is a woman. And uh, the question is, most of us have grown up hearing people talk about God, even if it's just on TV or hearing others criticize religion, but what or who is God? Uh, let's post some of the ideas and concepts that come into our minds when we think about God. And I, I just love what Lydia wrote, because she's not afraid to share her faith to point to Jesus. She wrote, when I think of God, I think of him in his omni-state. So she's like going way deep for these college students. His omni-states, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. I think that he's all-powerful, therefore he can help in times of need. And this is him showing that he is omnipotent. He shows that he is omniscient by knowing everything. The Bible talks about this as he knows the number of hairs on our heads. He is omnipresent because he is always with us. And then I, I said, that's awesome, but make sure you add that he's also all-loving by sending his son to be the Savior, and, and then quote John three sixteen and 17. Uh, but, but that's the way I'm sure she's going to hear the philosophies of this world as we're talking about, and Colossians says, because there's nothing new. And yet she was doing what we're talking about and what Paul's talking about, pointing to the fullness of God that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, Jeremy, what comparison is Paul making by talking about the circumcision of Christ? 
Well, he goes on in uh, verse 12 to explain it. He says, you were buried with Christ in baptism uh, and you were raised with him through faith in, in baptism, uh, worked by the, hand, uh, by the God who raised Christ from the dead. So uh, he's pointing out the similarities between circumcision and uh, modern, the, the New Testament baptism, that both of these are ways that, first of all, they're both commands of God, uh, the circumcision was for the old covenant and, uh, it was how you became a member of God's family through, through the old covenant and baptism is the way that you become a member of God's family under the new covenant. And, you know, circumcision is a cutting off of the foreskin and it is, uh, you know, that shedding of blood and, yeah, we can look at how Jesus was circumcised at eight days old, and he's already shedding blood for us as a Savior. But uh, here is that cutting off of the sinful nature, just like in baptism, it is the drowning of our sinful nature. And I think it's also applicable that you could say to those who disagree with infant baptism, to say, well, just as uh, a little boy was circumcised at day, eight days old, and Paul makes a comparison between circumcision and baptism, that if you're circumcised as an infant, you'd also be baptized as an infant. Well, and that, that, that gets to the heart of our understanding of the sacrament, doesn't it? That, that it is original sin that has to be washed clean, that uh, it's circumcision of the heart, which means the whole person is invaded. You know, that's was Luther's big deal with uh, Erasmus saying, you finally hit the very heart of the matter. Uh, you know, we are enslaved uh, by sin. And uh, so they got into quite the debate over that, and Luther ended up writing quite the book, The Bondage of the Will. And uh, my... my uh, <laughs> heart uh, is changed only by God through the power of the word in Christ. And that, that uh, recreation is, I think, uh, significant here in, in uh, Colossians because um, it's going to call Jesus the treasure early in the, earlier in the chapter. He's the, he's the sum of the treasure, not just the fullness of God, but he's, he's that which you want to give everything else away for. Because once you have Jesus, you've got everything you need. I'd never thought of, uh, we often talk about baptism doing the, the cleansing of our souls in a, you know, using the bath language, the, the washing language. But uh, Paul kind of gives us license here, doesn't he, to uh, say baptism does a, a cutting type of an action too. It cuts away the old uh, sinful flesh that uh, in in much the same way that circumcision cut away the the foreskin. And that he has that phrase, buried with Christ in baptism. So it connects baptism to our to Christ's death and resurrection. And that's one of the things that I point out. So this last Sunday we had our Paschal candle lit. And I always remind people it's lit for three specific times in the year. Uh, it's for baptisms. We didn't have a baptism on Sunday but it was the baptism of Jesus. And then it's lit also for the season of Easter because of Christ's death and resurrection, and then for funerals because that person has died in Christ, and now because of his death, it, he's connected with Christ's death and his resurrection. So his soul is in heaven, though the, the body of the saint is waiting in the earth. And that Paschal candle reminds us of that. Mark, how did God give us life when we were dead in our transgressions and sins? Well, you already kind of mentioned it, uh, our life patterns after Christ, the death and resurrection. Uh, the old uh, is, is taken away and the new is coming in the sense that uh, we are, we are uh, remade in, in Christ. We are new creatures and Paul will make that uh, very evident in in Romans, and uh, he'll he'll talk about uh, the way we now live is with that uh, constant awareness that we have been placed into a new relationship with God through Christ, a new relationship, and uh, 
So, so we are brand new, uh, once controlled by sin, we are no longer uh, slaves. We have been given a, a, a completely different life. And uh, the, the chapters, Romans chapters 6 through 8, is going to uh, make a big deal out of that. And uh, even when we struggle with our sin, chapter 7, even when we are, are, are trapped uh, a little bit by some of the things that happen, we always come back to that. But thanks be to God, he has given us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have either of you guys ever watched the TV show uh, Walk, The Walking Dead? No. Not really. Okay. Uh, I really haven't watched it either, but uh, I, I thought I wanted to get into it, and I was, ah, it's just you know, the same old thing of these uh, you know, zombies walking around, people escaping them. But I use this in my class when I talk about baptism because I ask the people— uh, you know, who are the walking dead? Well, they always say, well, it's the zombies. And they say, no. The producers of the show know that the walking dead are the survivors. Those are the, one are, the ones that are trying to escape the zombies. They're the walking dead. They're dead. They're going to get eaten by the zombies and consumed by them. They just don't know it yet. And I, I make the comparison in class. That's our culture. You know, there so many in our world are the walking dead. They look alive, but they're not. They're they're not. Eventually, sin and death is going to get them. You and I died to sin and are raised to a new life in Christ. We have escaped the zombies. We escaped the walking dead through baptism. But it's just interesting that the producers of the Walking Dead understood that when they made that show. Interesting analogy. Yeah. And, and the last question I have, uh, Jeremy, what great comfort does verse 15 give you? You have to know a thing or two about history. Uh, when the Roman army would uh, go out and uh, expand their territories of the Roman Empire, um, they, they, would, you know, they were going to war against other countries that had established borders and established uh, monarchies or governments. And... Uh, then when they would defeat those armies, uh, they would bring back all of the treasures, the spoils of war, uh, everything uh, to show everybody back in Rome, hey, look at what uh, uh, superpower we are in the world. We're, we've got all these riches and we beat, we won again. It's kind of like a home team after a, a championship uh, for uh, the NBA or the NFL uh, having a... a celebration in in the in the hometown of the team that won and so they they would have this parade and it had a very specific name which is a triumph and that's what paul says here that uh, god did with the rulers and authorities and there he's talking about demons he's talking about the devil and his fallen angels uh, who have been the cause of all our evil and every uh, suffering that we have to endure here on this earth uh, and so what a wonderful thing it is for us to know that uh, God has triumphed over them and he's, he's now putting on a parade. And this is what Paul is describing. And, and this is what you have to know about history with the Roman army is that this parade, when the, the army would come back into town, uh, would uh, m march uh, through the streets of Rome, showing all the treasures and, and everything that they had conquered and uh, the soldiers would be coming back and everybody would be cheering for them. Uh, and then the uh, end of the parade was the conquered soldiers, the conquered officers, and the king uh, of the conquered country. And uh, that was not a celebration for them. Everybody, uh, even the Romans, would feel sorry for them because they knew that those people were going, uh, at the end of the parade, they were being dragged along in order to be uh, executed in the arena. And uh, that's that's what God is promising us here for the devil, that the devil is being dragged along at the end of the parade after Jesus has conquered everything uh, in order to be executed in the arena. And I guess I could maybe sum this up best with uh, a bumper sticker that I saw coming home from school one day recently. Uh, maybe somebody here or somebody listening has seen it before. It says, uh, Whenever the devil reminds you of your past, 
remind him of his future. Hmm. That's that's kind of what this this triumphing over the powers and or the rulers and authorities is all about. One last thing I have is uh, thinking back to the name you gave me at the beginning of Michael Corleone. And in The Godfather, it's just interesting you picked that name for this episode and we're talking so much about baptism because in the end of that movie, Michael Corleone is in a Catholic church at the baptismal font for his nephew. Uh, becoming the godfather. Becoming the godfather of this infant and at the same time becoming the godfather of the mob, his father's mob, because his dad has died. And uh, the director, you know, he just uh, he's taking these two images of the Godfather uh, while he's making his vows of uh, faithfulness for his nephew. At or the, do you reject the, the devil and all of his works and all of his ways? And then you have all of these his his mob guys shooting mm-hmm. and killing all of the other mob guys, carrying out his orders that he had given to. Yeah. 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 Wow. It's a it's a very powerful scene. He's not really fulfilling his baptismal vows as a godfather at that time. Uh, all right. Uh, so we'll wrap it up here. This is Michael Zarling with Mark Wagner and Lightning Bright. That was one of Jeremy's favorite toys as a kid in the 80s. Uh, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.